Welcome to Foresight, I'm Greg Williams. We're currently doing a special series in which we spend time with a number of the speakers who we were fortunate to have grace our stage at the Wired Impact Sustainability event in London last November. Today we're going to talk about software, or more precisely, how software platforms can be utilised for corporate carbon accounting, decarbonisation and ESG reporting. Because of shareholder pressure, customer sentiment or internal agreement, most organisations have accepted that they need to come up with a plan for decarbonisation, but how to take meaningful action based on clear metrics and defined outcomes. That's a tough ask for many companies which is why we're seeing the rise of new software platforms that are able to take a company's data from throughout its supply chain. I'm talking about scope one, two, three emissions, measure it, and then set targets for reduction. My guest today is Luper Miller Jordanova, the CEO and co-founder of Plan A, a Berlin-based startup that works with organizations to manage their carbon accounting while mitigating their negative impact on the planet. Luper Miller's belief is that we can harness the power of data and AI to gain insights into the impact companies are having on the environment that enable us to set clear targets that will serve to decarbonize the economy and reach net zero. Enjoy the conversation. Luper Miller, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, absolutely delighted you can join us. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited, uh, as always, to chat to you. So I think it'd be useful for listeners if we just start with a little bit of context. A lot of the people I've spoken to in this series are are working on climate and they're thinking about building in the physical world. So they're thinking about batteries or carbon capture or photovoltaic cells. You decided to build a software platform. Can you just talk to us a little bit about Plan A and explain what it is, please? In 2016, I found myself in front of thousands and thousands of databases that were my kickoff of an analysis that allowed me to understand that our economy was actually assessing itself in an inaccurate manner. We were looking into KPIs that were not aligned to really the true value of different products, services, and anything that we were seeing, using on a daily basis. Um, this analysis was the uh, deciding point for me to build Plan A. Um, Plan A is a software as a service platform where we support businesses of mainly corporate kind of size uh, to decarbonize and align to policy. Uh, While I fully agree that the hardware side of the problem that we're tackling is critical, we've decided to be at the core of the data assessment uh, of this transition that will require a lot of new hardware, will require a lot of old hardware also to be updated. But before this happens, we need to know what steps we need to take, where we need to invest our money and how uh, we can create the most effective net zero plans. So that's where we are sitting with planning. So this is super interesting because you're taking a data-based approach Obviously, that means that results are only as good as the data that you have access to. If you're working with large corporates, there's lots of different silos, I'd imagine, lots of different areas in which that data is held. How do you know that what you're working with is is both reliable and also complete? The first step of the engagement between Plan A and any company is what we call data mapping. And through this exercise, we're able to understand how mature is the company when it comes to data storage, data gathering, uh, and also data education, uh, the level of understanding of the employees and their stakeholders on 
how uh, insights are gathered and uh, assessed. The second layer of this data mapping is uh, maturity assessment on the topic of sustainability. How far is the company when it comes to net zero? Uh, do they understand the concepts of scope one, two, three, life cycle assessment, uh, product carbon footprint, and so on? And finally, we also look into their BI systems to understand what is the possible level of automation. Once we have all these insights, uh, we actually are capable of understanding what is the level of accuracy that we can achieve, how fast this can be done, and also uh, where there's a potential for the data to not be as valuable because maybe it comes through manual inputs uh, at this point and is not uh, sitting in systems that can be used for reliable data gathering. All of these steps allow us to essentially kick off the process with a very clear view on what is the true sustainability level of the company and then how we can define this net zero plan that would allow them to then move forward. What might be interesting now is for you to give us a sense, you know, when you're doing the data mapping, you say with most organizations, that's obviously your, I guess, your first step. Can you just walk us through the process, how you work with organizations. I guess a lot of it is to do with with education, right? You said that a lot of them are sort of somewhere, you know, on a spectrum between understanding whatever scope one through to scope three. Just take us through that process of how you work with an organization. It is really important for us to realize that today, you and I and a thousand people more might be incredibly excited about sustainability, corporate decarbonization, uh, net zero planning, but the reality is that many uh, businesses and many stakeholders that are part of the decision making of why our economy develops well are not particularly engaged with uh, this domain. With this in mind, we need to be understanding that most likely when you end up in front of a company that is starting to think about the topic because maybe of legislation or because of stakeholder pressure such as investors or employees, they are quite clueless on how to go about the steps that would bring them to a level where these stakeholders that have been putting pressure on them or this legislation are satisfied with the outcome. We do the data assessment only after we have clearly understood uh, also the level of engagement that this whole organization has uh, with the sustainability topic. Sometimes you see a lot of enthusiasm on the management side. Maybe the CEO or the board has been emphasizing on sustainability and therefore someone has taken upon the project to find a software like ours. There's other cases where there's one enthusiastic, what we call a green champion, that needs also a lot of support even on our side to be able to push the topic internally. So we have uh, as a company in our approach to uh, assessing all the opportunities that come our way a lot of empathy uh, to the discrepancy of why someone would be coming to us or not and we quite quickly are able to get to an understanding what's the level of that and then the steps after are quite mechanical because the product allows for this data mapping to happen for the assessment of the accuracy that we can achieve and then the decarbonization planning that happens automatically on the product based on all the data that has been gathered you mentioned stakeholder pressure i guess there's employee pressure maybe there's you know a board level as you say there's a green champion how do you think about the other part of that which is obviously like policy we've seen you know 
big moves from uh, in the United States with the IRA. We've seen the green legislation that's um, been implemented by the EU that Franz Timmermans is, is leading. How can you be flexible enough to ensure that all those kind of like new policy decisions that are being released in, in a quite fluid way, how do you build that into the software? Policy is a double-edged sword. On one hand, it's incredibly useful to have a framework around which we can think about a topic like sustainability, uh, because then you're not lost in translation when you're trying to navigate all the different KPIs and all the different topics that sit within the sustainability topic. However, on the other hand, uh, there's also a lot of research that shows that the more policies that come out, the more time is dedicated to preparing all these different reports and the less time there is available for taking action. There was a beautiful study that came out from Harvard Business Review uh, a few months back that showed that actually the more reports we create, the absolutely clearly aligned linear growth there is also in emissions. I have a lot of admiration for the different policies that came out, uh, EU taxonomy, T uh, the TCFD uh, uh, in the UK, also, uh, of course, ERA for the part that it's about sustainability, because let's not forget that there's also a lot of work done there about gas and oil exploration. But I think we're going to have to wait a few years until these uh enormous uh, pieces of effort uh, translate in something that can practically support businesses to decarbonize. It's still quite a lot of theory. And I think we have a chance to pick and choose what can be useful if you as a company have the ambition to become uh, net zero, uh, listen and read when it comes to these uh, policies. But it will take some time until they're fully aligned to what also is economically beneficial. And you talked us through the process, uh, Luba Miller. I'm interested to get your thoughts on what the typical challenges are. What, what are most organisations going to come up against when they, they work with you and they're, they're serious about getting to net zero in terms of their emissions? Education is a really critical point when you kick off a sustainability journey within a business, regardless of the size of it. Usually there's discrepancy in the level of knowledge, also commitment, as well as engagement. And when you apply some useful and in our case, successful practices related to involving others by explaining to them what is the benefit of sustainability, you stand a better chance of accomplishing your net zero agenda, right. but also pushing uh, it faster. Uh, because others are just sold to the idea that sustainability can also mean economical outcome that is positive for the business. The second key pillar is related to data. We mentioned this uh, already in the data mapping uh, analysis and data is scattered across uh, an organization and its stakeholders such as suppliers uh, because we just have never been doing carbon accounting as we have been doing for decades now, financial accounting, for example. So in the case of financial accounting, you would go to the finance department and they would have data from every single department about their needs related to campaigns, related to hiring, uh, related to different types of spend. But there will be a consolidated uh, place where all of this is sitting. When it comes to financial uh, carbon accounting, we're talking about data related to your 
operations, your facilities, your right. employees and how they commute to the office, your logistics, your partners in the supply chain. Right. And as you can assume, um, this data uh, gathering process is uh, quite complex the more you want to go down into scope three. And a final challenge that I call uh, qualitative, but at the end of the day, is probably the most quantitative one, uh, is the level of engagement uh, and concern related to climate change altogether. I think we're still decoupling economic growth and stability from our capability of addressing climate change, which is really dangerous because as I was mentioning in the beginning, you take a KPI like GDP that historically has been our definition for growth, at the moment, you can quite easily observe that it is to some extent an invalid one, given we are paying the bills for climate change. They're just not embedded into this growth right. KPI that we use. Only last year, there was more than half a trillion that was paid in climate risk related costs. And that was unaccounted for. That was not expected, even from big insurance companies. So we clearly have a bit of a mathematical challenge and the sense of urgency, I think, can allow us really to move a lot faster. What kind of measures do you think we should be using other than GDP? I think GDP has been a reliable KPI like any other KPI because we've all decided to align to it. So it's similar to our common agreement in society that blue is blue or a tomato is a vegetable, even though it's a fruit. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, uh, I, I think when it comes to uh, um, the KPIs and which ones would be perceived as successful for being better aligned to what truly value stands for is when you look at the example of a t-shirt, let's say. If you look at a t-shirt, today you can find online an option that costs $2 and you can find an option that is $1,500. Is it at the end of the day a t-shirt? Yes, it is. Can you put it on and then use it when it's summer? Yes, you can. The reason why the two costs are different is because we have now been able to get to a level of economies of scale where a fast fashion company can put out something that has been made in conditions that are not good for people, uh, not good for the environment. There's a lot of waste that maybe is going into the fresh water. Mm -hmm. And we need to recalibrate this to find the truth somewhere in the middle between the two and the 1,200 or 1,500. The KPIs that need to be in between those is everything that is related to the production, everything that is related to the end of use of products, everything that is related to the well-being of the employees and all the stakeholders involved on the outside of the organization, such as suppliers. This can be framed in the ESG framework, but I think to put it more simply, we just need to account for the steps of the way that have gotten us to the end result of having this T-shirt being produced and then distributed. And just thinking about that T-shirt, presumably, I don't know if you're a fashion retailer in Berlin or London, the way that that's been manufactured, that's going to come into your, what, your scope three emissions how can organizations really understand what's happening like way down the line when they're working with manufacturers who are maybe geographically distant that maybe don't have the same level of transparency that one would expect or anticipate maybe a a western country to have like how do you dig into that 
distant manufacturer and, and as you say, like measure the impact on the water course in that process? There's three levels of assessment of a company that are defined by the GHG protocol that define emission scopes on the three levels in which they occur. Scope one is your facilities and vehicles. Scope two is related to any services such as electricity, heating, cooling, gas uh, related to your transportation. Uh, and then you have scope three where you have your suppliers, logistics, investments if you're a financial institution, employee, travel, commute, and so on. Companies these days are taking steps uh, in assessing scope one and two, and that's fairly straightforward because that's data that, albeit not always the easiest to find, still is accessible because you do know who is your office manager. If you don't have one, you can call the landlord and they can give you the bill for the office electricity. When it comes to scope three, obviously it gets a little bit more tricky because we're talking in the case of some of our clients like BMW, about thousands of suppliers. When we talk about other clients like Chloe, the fashion company, we're talking about hundreds of suppliers that are scattered across the world and sometimes change based on the collection, based on uh, the season. So what many companies have been doing is they actually have used the scope three assessment framework to first of all, set up the infrastructure for what data needs to be gathered. And in the case of your suppliers, you need their scope one and two. So you need to assess okay. their consumption of electricity, heating, cooling, um, fuel, and so on. Um, and, um, through, for example, the planning platform, you can invite these suppliers and they submit data to you. And then you have a unified way of understanding what is your scope three category one for suppliers. But then you can dig into understanding what this particular supplier is contributing to my overall emission outlook. Um, this is not necessarily coming out of only the good fate of wonderful businesses uh, that want to do better uh, and be more transparent. There's a lot of legislation that is pushing for this kind of transparency. And the EU is definitely leading the way on this, where uh, now you need to even dig into your supply chain to understand if there's been lawless deforestation that has contributed to the production of your product. If you're, for example, a cacao producer and you're making chocolate that is being sold as a French brand, you actually need to understand all these suppliers that contribute to uh, the cacao production, whether they are doing this in a right according to the EU standards manner. And this is a game changer. This has been the case for the last 12 months, um, not only on the topic of deforestation, but also textiles, impact on water, also impact on animal welfare and this is now kicking off as this large uh, shift towards becoming more aligned to a GDP plus kind of KPI assessment and gathering uh, rather than sticking only to the monetary value of the products that we produce. Clearly, what you've just described needs to be done within frameworks of, you know, recognised scientific methodologies, recognised standards. How do you ensure that Plan A is, is able to deliver that? We're the only company on the market that has a certified software for the methodology that we use. We get to be recertified every six months because, of course, we update quite often our product and we add a lot of new features, a lot of new emission uh, categories that we can cover for many different industries because we cover a variety of industries like 
automotive, fashion, utility, financial institutions, tech, uh, in terms of hardware and software and uh, so on. We have been loyal to science since the beginning. I come from finance background. I used to work in investment banking and in fintech in London. And when I got excited and mostly frightened about what was going to happen to uh, our planet, but also our economy. Um, I dived a lot into the science uh, that was defining quite clearly for decades that we had a big problem ahead of us. What became evident was that in science was both the problem definition, but also the solutions. And we needed to be incredibly trustful to all of the data uh, proven evidence that was explaining what kind of steps we needed to take in order to decarbonize economies, in order to align ourselves better to the planetary uh, boundaries. And the ultimate outcome was that the first person that joined the company was a climate data scientist coming from Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research. Today, we have a full department that is dedicated to this, people from decarbonization, life cycle analysis, climate modeling, policy um, backgrounds. And their job is really to be at the first step of the product development uh, in plan A. We have a lot of also internal education to equip even our sales teams and every single person that interacts with our product on the internal or external side on the value of science, because it should not be only sitting within this particular department. So how do we ensure that we are aligned to that? First of all, we have the people that have the brains and uh, the, the capabilities and the, the history in the topic. Second of all, we uh, educate our team uh, so that they are also advocates for the uh, scientific value uh, in our product. And finally, we spend quite a lot of time through our educational platform that we have developed on the side of our product uh, on explaining to clients or potential prospects of why they also should be better informed in order to be also uh, more economically stable based on the fact that they're acting uh, better towards the planet. We're going to take a short break now, but we will be back with more from Lubomila Jordanova. Just want to go back to organizations that you're working with now, just and just generally in in terms of the marketplace. So obviously a lot of organizations are facing considerable risk around climate, but also risk around um, it having been revealed that their mitigation efforts are effectively greenwashing. How do you think about the best way that organizations can avoid the latter? I mean, I, I assume this comes back again to data. I am smiling which the listeners cannot see. I should say to the listeners that actually the first time I met you, we had a, you gave me a very frank uh, assessment of your thoughts on, uh, on greenwashing, which was yeah. in, in, incredibly refreshing. <laughs> uh, as we say in plan A, there's no plan B and also there's no time actually to be fooling ourselves that things are going to continue uh, in the same manner, <laughs> business as usual, familiar to all of us. Uh, while we do some nice to have initiatives on the CSR side and expect that all of a sudden uh, in a miraculous manner, the planet is going to heal itself yeah. and therefore stop all of these uh, increase uh, in speed and scale of natural disasters. What's really interesting is that at the moment, there's a lot of 
green something terms coming up. So greenwashing has been historically known, uh, explaining cases where a business is deceiving their audiences by telling a story about being sustainable while ultimately knowing that they're not. And there's many cases, even of litigations, for example, against H&M, ASOS, and a few other companies where they got sued by the UK government because of the fact that they were pouring money into a marketing campaign around their respective conscious lines of clothing while, of course, making 90% of their money from $2 t-shirts as the ones that we were discussing earlier. Yeah, There's another term that popped up uh, a few months ago now, and it's gaining a lot of traction, and that's green hushing. Um, mm. I really appreciate it because I think it's one of the challenges we have on the pathway as many more businesses are getting involved with sustainability in a truthful manner. And that's the idea of a company under communicating the good sustainability efforts that they're doing. And that's the whole idea that any business can benefit so much from learning about a peer within their industry doing well on um, sustainability because at the end of the day, a fashion company has to go through the same decarbonization process as another one, regardless of the fact that the t-shirt or the blouse or the dress looks different. And uh, with green hushing, essentially businesses are skipping the opportunity of teaching also others on how they can go about. We are going to see a lot more greenwashing, uh, but I think it's really important to clarify that this is not always going to be intended. Businesses are on their path of educating themselves of really what sustainability is, and legislation happens on them to understand also what they need to prioritize, but they're also uh, testing and failing. Sometimes decisions are being made in the marketing department while there's no sustainability department, which is absolutely intended in a way greenwashing because you need to have an expert in your team before making any sustainability claims. And actually the UK government just announced an update to uh, the, the advertising allowance for what businesses can claim as sustainable. So you cannot say, for example, anymore planet friendly because right. the UK government says it's too vague. We have now a challenge of spending extensive amounts of efforts on educating consumers, educating businesses, educating also citizens on how we align the thinking around sustainability and how do we make sure that we become all capable of recognizing greenwashing. I think it's going to take some time until this is really fully aligned. And within that time, there's going to be a lot of businesses that also do greenwashing on purpose. However, I am hopeful as I see now all of these times like Green Hushing and many others that explain that the efforts are kicking off and the results are coming. Uh, and one area that I'd love to get your thoughts on is the, the carbon offsets market. I mean, everything I read about it suggests that it really is very, very hard for organisations to to navigate. How do you think we can fix it? Is this about transparency or internationally agreed standards and certification? It all just seems a little bit kind of random at the moment and organisations don't seem to really often know who they're getting into business with when they're thinking about carbon offsets. You put it way too elegantly. I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the industry is actually quite of a mess and that is to do with the fact that there's a legacy of decades 
when this whole market kicked off with NGOs wanting to contribute to the efforts of businesses, engaging them through nice initiatives, saying, hey, let me explain to you uh, a little bit more about your negative impact on the planet. Well, you understood what your negative impact on the planet is. Now, please invest in planting trees or invest in renewable energy for communities that are using coal at the moment. What happened, though, in the last few years is obviously, as we've seen, uh, the whole climate change sustainability topic exploded due to the legislation, due to customer awareness, due to citizen concern, due to the rise of communities like Fridays for Future. And what this led to was the most blunt business response that we always have, which is uh, follow the money. And it seemed quite convenient that $1 equals one ton of CO2. Mm. <laughs> uh, and now we can actually build a whole financial market around that. Now we can also embed this into existing financial markets. And now we can also invest billions and billions within 12 months uh, into the industry, be it in tech companies that are offering optimization on uh, buying these credits or uh, in even companies that were essentially setting up these projects and then scaling them. The problem, though, is that many of these projects historically were never expected to have to monitor continuously the quality and also the technically enabled observation of the success of these projects was also not a part of the investment. So you wouldn't have drones that would be watching over the trees and seeing if they're healthy and happy and therefore a viable investment. Essentially, uh, for the context of the listeners, what has happened in the last three months is that there's been explosive research that came by different investigative bodies, be it journalists or NGOs, who found out that one of the main standards for certification of these projects had 90% of its projects actually creating CO2 emissions rather than removing CO2 emissions. Second challenge that was uh, identified was of a company that is really well known for offering a climate neutral stamp uh, in Germany to have used different methodologies when giving uh, these labels to companies because uh, their business essentially uh, has been historically to sell these credits. Um, they will do the assessment of a business, tell them you have let's say 100 tons of CO2, now you need to buy carbon credits uh, to compensate for that. But actually the Frankfurt court found out that they were using sometimes an assessment of scope one and two, sometimes an assessment of scope one, two, and a little bit of three, sometimes an assessment of scope one, two, and three, but still would be giving every single time these stamps of approvals. And what the scientific methodology says is that you need to assess scope one, two, and three, and then buy credits of the equivalent of that to be able to claim that you're carbon neutral. What this resulted in is that now the EU has also announced that they're planning on removing uh, the possibility for any business to claim carbon neutrality if it's not backed by data showing scope one, two, and three with heavy reliance on primary data. So no averages, no uh, estimations of the CO2 emissions associated. A final example has been the case where one of the biggest certification companies that is also a project developer, so they both develop the projects and for the sake of simplicity, I would say like, let's say planting trees, 
an investigation found out that this project that was of the equivalent of 250 million, and it was accounting for, I believe, more than 70% of the revenue of this company was actually not reducing emissions, but it was actually creating emissions because the forests were not maintained well. What my view on this market is, is that, that there's a ceiling to it. We should not anticipate that this market is going to explode in value, as many investors did think last year. And the reason for this is that as much as we want to commoditize the whole uh, carbon accounting, uh, um, carbon offset, uh, uh, decarbonization uh, set of topics, we cannot do that until we don't really start actually addressing the different issues related to the instability of our economy that are impacted by climate change. And just buying our way out of the crisis is not going to happen. We don't offer carbon offsets to our clients. We have partners that we can connect them with so that they essentially have the possibility to offset. But uh, our main focus as a company is really the actual decarbonization and navigating the complexity of this journey that we know is more complex. We know it takes a lot more time, but it's the only valuable step that we need to take as a society, as an economy, if we want to be competitive tomorrow. And I think that's a great moment really to segue into another area that I know you're very passionate about. You gave a great talk at Wide Impact last November, and and I'd recommend that listeners go onto YouTube and and dig it out. You linked the decarbonisation of the economy to broader economic health. Can you just give us a shorter version of that in the way that you talked about it at the event, if you don't mind. If I can allow myself, I want to make a comment about the conference, which was one of the really most thought-provoking ones. And I do speak it like last year, it was 150 conferences. So uh, uh, kudos uh, (laughs) to organizing this and putting together such thoughtful content uh, around such an important topic, such as climate change, but also general impact. What I explained in the presentation, and I still stand firmly behind it, is that if you observe economic KPIs like GDP growth, you actually see that over the last 12 years, this KPI has been particularly stagnant. It has been fluctuating a little bit up, a little bit down. And ultimately, since COVID, things are just going down. Um, The reason for this is that we have been skipping the assessment of these other KPIs that I was mentioning related to assessing the true value of the economy, the true value of our actions, of the products that we build, and the externalities that come alongside the production of this infamous $2 t-shirt that we've been discussing in the beginning of the talk. We have to start coupling the assessment of all these KPIs. If we, as businesses, want to also be competitive tomorrow. And I'll give the example through the stakeholder lens. If you look at the investor perspective, there's now extensive amount of evidence that shows that businesses that are better aligned to environmental, uh, social and governance KPIs are a lot more stable as businesses in terms of growth, but also a lot more capable of continuous revenue increase. And for investors, they're better return against the money that they've put into the company. 
The second example is employees. There was a study that was done by a, a massive research agency last year or the year before, where they invited one million people uh, to explain how they thought about the decisions that they were making when it came to sticking with a company, switching company, or finding your next employer. So these three steps of the process that sometimes happen in someone's career. What came out univocally as the most important decision-making part was actually how aligned the company was to the values of this particular person. And that was not necessarily only about the environmental side or the response to climate change, but it was really related to, do you treat people fairly? Uh, do we know uh, whether we have sweatshops in our supply chain? Do we uh, look into the mental health of the employees? One might say that these KPIs are totally unrelated, but I, uh, as someone that is building a company, would beg to defer because you see how a company that is good towards the environment is also, in a way, with the kinds of employees that have the expectation that their mental health is also something that is going to be respected. There's extensive studies that show that Gen Z uh, nowadays is even being incredibly vocal about this when they choose their job or when they set up uh, initiatives in their company. And the final example is consumers. I love giving the example of two of the big industries in which we are active, uh, automotive and fashion, to in people's minds, maybe different industries, but actually significantly more close to one another than one might think because both of the industries are pressured by legislation. Uh, and also with the purchase of one single product, you have the license to complain because if you buy a product that is not of good quality, albeit of normally the costs are significantly different for a car versus a, a piece of clothing, Still, the outcome is the same. In the consumer sphere, the main uh, concern comes from the fact that nowadays it's really not anymore about brand loyalty. It's really about, again, aligning yourself to your values or aligning yourself to your style. But um, the trends such as secondhand, clothes renting um, and reselling only exploding uh, in the last few years, but significantly so that there's been billions that have been poured into the industry from a tech perspective. So if you look at these three elements, um, going back to where we started, we're looking into an economy that is heavily defined by a mix of qualitative and quantitative conditions that only will allow probably a tiny little subset of industries that are uh, rootless uh, in their approach that don't care about any of these different uh, elements to be able to survive. But because we live in a globalized uh, economy, uh, even they would have to change because the legislation is there, the consumer pressure is there, citizens are going out on the streets, as well as also the investors are putting their money where they know there will be a return that is stable. Right. Yeah, exactly. And action has to be, I guess, it has to be systemic, right? It has to happen throughout the entire economy. We've got obviously a rapidly closing window for action, seven years or less than seven years to halve CO2 emissions. And... I'm sure you saw the most recent IPCC report. It was quite bleak. You're an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs are known for being upbeat, for looking on the bright side. Can you make a case for optimism at the moment? When I signed up to build Plan A, the first consideration that I had was what do I anticipate 
my mental health to look like after decades of working on this because I am an incredibly passionate person by nature. So I knew that if I get myself into this, I'm not going away from it. And I made a really quick decision that what mattered most was that I had now been given the gift of knowledge and I didn't have any way to unknow what I knew. And therefore I needed to be at the forefront of the action at a time when there was no such uh, in the context of tech, in the context of also even um, the economy uh, from a governmental corporate perspective. And the way I keep on pushing on daily basis and what keeps me going is the deep concern for humanity, but also the deep love for people, uh, for animals, uh, for happiness, because all of these things are interlinked. And if we consider ourselves as an entity uh, that is part of an ecosystem, which we are not managing, but rather participating in, then it's a matter of life or death for us to decide whether we want to be part of this ecosystem, because otherwise we get spit out as per also the latest IPCC report. Yeah. And well, this is not the most positive maybe thought, uh, why it has been able to give me a lot of hope is the true belief in uh, people's capability of moving away from a challenge by being incredibly quick to act and also uh, being incredibly creative uh, and capable. We've done so much incredible work and we've evolved so much in our capacity to utilize technology, to utilize tools, uh, to be advanced in our way of thinking, philosophizing, intellectualizing the world. I don't think this is a challenge that we're not going to be able to tackle. And I'm convinced by all the innovators that I see in the space. I think there's still a little bit of a disbelief uh, in many people's minds that they need to be at the forefront of this. And that's what I do on a daily basis with my activities is giving people uh, with my thoughts, with my ideas, with my comments, the the feeling that they have the license to act. Uh, and I, I really hope that this is something that is productive and it really pushes the needle because it's only going to work if we all work together. I really like that phrase, the license to act. And um, I think we should actually, at another point, do a whole other podcast on just how we bring ecosystem services in, and the natural world into the broader economy. But we, we don't have time today. So I've got a final question for you, uh, Lou and Miller. Uh, we're seeing a lot of capital moving into climate tech, if you can call it that. We're seeing a lot of, as you say, a lot of innovators, a lot of entrepreneurs moving into that space. Like, What advice would you give an entrepreneur starting out in the impact space from what you've learned? I would give three. <laughs> uh, uh, a, first of all, uh, follow the science. Uh, it's so incredibly important that the step that is first taken by anyone building a company in this space is really to understand the fundamental problem that we're trying to tackle. Why? Because uh, I've seen in the last 12 months, as well as all of us have seen that are part of the ecosystem, the downfall of so many companies that just built something of the bat of the, the trend and then were not able to justify to their consumers and their investors why the calculation was off, why the product failed, why they needed to shut down uh, the company. The second advice is stay authentic. Uh, I am someone that hates ego. I think 
and I've been told by many powerful uh, leaders and people that I admire that a little bit of ego is always helpful because then you don't get shoved around. Sure. But when it comes to the authenticity of building something, uh, you need to stay true to yourself and the core of why you're building what you're building. Because in our industry, it's quite easy to get on the slippery slope of being excited by this one Wyatt article that is written about you, excited about this one event where someone famous uh, comes and speaks to you. Uh, and these are just tests that the universe sends you of how <laughs> committed you are uh, to this uh, whole uh, game. And uh, the commitment is validated by the results, not by the vanity. So the final advice is really have fun. I think. The stiffness of uh, networking, sometimes uh, superficiality of conversations that sometimes are held, actually remove the possibility of something turning into a deal a lot faster or turning even into a friendship or an opportunity to hire someone. So as soon as someone enters into a conversation with how are you rather than who you are, you stand a better chance of actually uh, convincing these people to want to work with you. I think follow the science, be authentic, have fun is good advice, not just for company building, but generally for life, right? So uh, <laughs> there you thank, go. Thank... Philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, just always delightful to speak with you, Lupin Miller. Thank you so much for joining us um, on the Foresight podcast. And um, yeah, really excited to follow your journey from uh, from here onwards. Thank you. Wired Foresight is a Condé Nast Entertainment production. Jessica Taylor is our managing producer. Emily Elias is our producer. Annalise Begent is our production assistant. Jake Loomis is our mix engineer. Special thanks to Hannah Brewer, Jordan Bell, Peyton Hayes and Nico Steele. I'm Greg Williams and we'll be back next week with the entrepreneur Matthew Flamini, who is attempting to disrupt the multi-trillion dollar chemicals market with his biochemical startup. Thank you so much for joining us.